Well, if you've been around Calvary, either in person and, or online, and a special welcome to all our online audience today, uh, you know that we've been in John uh, this year, and uh, we've been in John for several months, and specifically in January, uh, we've been in John chapter 6, and today is the last uh, Sunday, the last day of January, and so we're going to be wrapping up chapter 6 today. If you remember, chapter 6 began with this huge crowd, right? It all started with a crowd. It was a crowd of people who had come because they had heard and or seen the different miracles that Jesus had uh, done, and so there was this incredible interest in him. And so scholars tell us a a crowd of about 20,000 people had gathered there, and they were listening to him teach, and and they were enjoying all of this. And then near the end of the day, uh, there was this problem of what are they going to do with the meal, the, how are they going to feed these people? And so there's this interesting interaction between Jesus and his followers about them giving him something to eat. And they were like dumbfounded. Wow, well, how can we somehow feed this entire crowd? And so Jesus shows them how they can feed the crowd. He took what was a little bit and we found out what? That in the hands of Jesus, a little is actually a lot. And so he took the loaves in verse 11, and after giving thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also with the fish, as much as they wanted. Not just a little smidge like Philip said. You know, it'd take, you know, a half a year's wage for a day laborer to feed everyone just a little bite. And Jesus gave them all as much as they wanted over and over, seconds, thirds, fourths, how much ever uh, that they wanted. So after this, you know, this uh, miracle that took place, this miracle of multiplication, these signs that, that John is identifying, trying to help us to see why is he recording these signs, why is Jesus doing these things, because he wants the people to see and believe that he is the one that is sent from God. That's what John's agenda is. That's what Jesus' agenda is. And so after that event took place, Jesus withdrew by himself. His, his followers took off. They went across the lake, and a storm blew up. It was pretty uh, turbulent, and, and Jesus comes walking out to them on the water, and we have that incredible miracle of him walking on the water and calming it and instantaneously transporting them over to the other side. And so that, like, the, the, uh, as you can imagine, the disciples are kind of, the headspace around all of that is pretty shocking, right? Well, he gets there, and he's, he's in the area of, of Capernaum, and the people who were there in the big crowd, they were, they, they, the next day, they, they saw that, they, they knew that Jesus hadn't gotten into the boat, but he wasn't there, the disciples weren't there, so they went looking for him on land, and they, and they found him, and when they found him, Jesus said to them, you know, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, implying there that not because you saw the signs and think something about me, which is what the sign is trying to do, is trying to help them to distinguish Jesus from everyone else, that he is the Messiah. You're not coming because of that out of of a place of faith, but instead you're coming because you ate the loaves and were filled and you're hoping I'll do it again. You want another free meal, right? And so he, he begins to use, and it all began with these loaves, and he carries this metaphor entirely all the way through the end of the chapter. And by the way, you should know that once we get to the end of the, of the walking on the water, the rest of the information that we have in John is all unique to John. It's not found in the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And so as, as Jesus challenges them, he says, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. 
He goes on then to make this audacious claim in trying to help them to understand as, he, as again, they're thinking about the bread that they want, the meal that they want, the food that they want, why they're coming to him. And he says instead, I, I'm the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, and this is the unfortunate reality in the ministry of Jesus and the unfortunate reality in our uh, world as well. You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen the signs, you've heard me uh, share with you the heart of the Father, and yet you don't believe. He wants them to understand as, they're, uh, as, he's, as he's using this bread metaphor that he's not coming to them as the new Moses because they kind of thought that he was, the, he was just like Moses was the one who provided for Israel in the wilderness through the manna that he would provide for them in, in that similar way, this, 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 uh, this bread that he had, he had multiplied. But he's, he's not identifying himself as the new Moses, but he's identifying himself as the new manna that came from the Father instead of, and, and instead of the manna that came from the Father that they ate and they died. He's the new manna, this bread of life. And so, of course, the reaction to that, if you remember, is the Jews began to grumble because of this bread of life, you know, comment about this claim. And they're like, wait a second, we know who this guy really is. He's just Joseph's son. We know who his father is. We know who his mother is. And Jesus says, you know, well, now, hold on, you, you don't understand. And then he begins to refer to how in, in, in and around verses 43 through 46, he tells them to stop grumbling among themselves, stop muttering, stop the, all of this low-tone discontent that's going on in the crowd, and understand who my father really is. And then, like we said last week, he doubles down on this. He doesn't, he doesn't backpedal like us oftentimes we have to do, right? We say something in a meeting and then we got to backpedal from it because maybe it was an overstatement, maybe it was an exaggeration. Jesus says, no, truly I tell you, he says it again, anyone who believes has eternal life because I am the bread of life. He wants them to hear it and hear it well. He says to them that your ancestor ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But this is the bread. I am the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat it and not die. That reality of what Jesus is trying to, to tell them is this, is this whole issue of not the bread that he provided for them on that miracle on the, uh, as he was sitting by the lake and doing the teaching, but instead this living bread, this new manna that came down from heaven. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then they're like, now wait a second, you've definitely gone too far now. And so they question him in verse 53, and we looked at that last week where they say, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And by the way, they would have been abhorred, any, any pious, any religious, any devout Jew would have, been, you know, would have, would have abhorred this, this statement that Jesus made about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. But again, not backpedaling. Jesus not only doubles down, but he triples down. That's what we saw last week, right? And so he says, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, that is me, and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. 
what Jesus is trying to do, and this is the point that we made last week. He's trying to take this bread metaphor and carry it all the way through and say, instead of being focused on the here and the now and how I can provide for your temporal needs by giving you another free meal, eat me, feast on me, make me your life's purpose and meaning, consume me, be consumed by me. That's the point that he's making here when he uses this graphic language of eating his uh, flesh and drinking his blood. Verse 59 then tells us that he was doing this while it was, quote unquote, in church, so to speak. He was teaching all of this in the synagogue in Capernaum, and that was kind of like Jesus' home base. And so as he was teaching this, of course, when he carried through, just like we saw throughout this, the entirety of chapter 6, these different reactions of contempt and, and, and this, this confusion about what Jesus is trying to do, we then see more reactions when we pick up the story today in verse 60. And the first reaction we see from the people as they're thinking about this audacious claim that Jesus has made is, is kind of like just disdain. Verse 60 says, therefore, when many of his disciples heard this, they said, this teaching is hard. Who can accept it? This teaching is hard. It's probably not meant to be understood that not, not like it's hard to understand, not hard to comprehend, but it's hard to incorporate into your life. It's hard to accept John Calvin said this, the hardness was in their hearts, not in the saying that Jesus said. The hardness was in their hearts. The Greek word that we translate into English as hard is skleros. You know what atherosclerosis is, right? We, we call it in a, in a very layman's term, the hardening of one's arteries, right? When the plaque buildup is there and the blood flow is compromised. So skleros it literally means dry. It means hard or tough. Figuratively, it is harsh. It's severe. It's almost like they're saying, this is, this is over the line. This is some harsh stuff you're saying, rabbi. And that's the point. He's not like every other rabbi. And they're beginning to like, at first, and we're going to want to see this as we finish, uh, finish up this passage today. At first, that was intriguing to them. It drew them to Jesus because of his uniqueness, how he wasn't just like uh, every other rabbi in the way that they taught. He did unusual things. He's, he taught unusually d- different kind of truths, things that they weren't accustomed to. But now they're saying, this is hard. Who can accept it? Who's got the, uh, who's got the ability? Who is able to accept it? Uh, the, the Greek word there actually is akuo. It means to hear. Have you ever... Have you ever when someone said something that is absolutely distasteful to you, have you ever said something like this? I just can't even listen to that. It's exactly what this phrase is. This stuff is harsh, man. No way. I can't even listen to this, Jesus. I'm done. Who can accept it? Who can hear it? It's not that they couldn't understand it, but they couldn't give ear to this teaching by this teacher. It was disdain. It was contempt. It's like, I'm done with it. And of course, again, one of my favorite parts of the ministry of Jesus is the way that he interacts with people. And, and John, the writer says, inspired by God to remind us that in, in this, that Jesus, knowing in himself that his, that his disciples were grumbling about this, 
that they had this low-level discontent, right? The same word that was used before, it's in the, earlier in the chapter, it's gungudzo. It means to murmur, to mutter, to grumble. To, it's usually uh, in the context of people who are discontentedly complaining. You know how that goes, right? The example I used last week, how many of us as parents, as we said something that, that our kids maybe didn't agree with as they were walking away and said something in a low tone, have had to say, what'd you say? Right? That's kind of the, the imagery here of what's happening here. So Jesus, knowing in, that his disciples were grumbling about this, says to them, oh, does this offend you? Does this offend you? Does this cause you to have some sort of negative reaction? It's a, it's a really interesting word that's used here. It's not used that often by John, though it's used by Matthew and Mark on uh, several occasions. It's, it's the picture that Jesus is using here is actually taken from the practice of trapping birds and other animals. The trap was set, a very primitive track, a trap in the ancient world, it was set with a stick. The stick was known as a scandalon. And that stick would prop open the trap. And so when the bird sat on the stick and moved it, the trip the, the trap was triggered and the, and the bird was captured. So the, the verb form of that, scandalon, is scandalizo. Scandalizo literally means to trigger off the trap. It literally means to trap. And figuratively, figuratively it means to trip up or, or to cause to stumble. It's, uh, one uh, uh, scholar, as I was reading and studying this week, said, it's very difficult to find a satisfactorily Engl- English equivalent of this word. But it seems that Jesus perceived that what he said meant trouble, meant stumbling, meant a trap to them. Not blessing or enlightenment to these people he was sharing this with. And that's why he said, does this offend you? Does this trap you? Does this trip you up? Does this cause you to stumble? They would not accept it. They could not imagine that he was, in fact, the one way. They couldn't come to grips with the fact that he was the bread of life, that their life was to be about him completely, that they were to feast on him. They couldn't come to grips with that and be in a place of faith to receive it. So Jesus had, in a sense, tripped them up. He had caused them to stumble. And so they didn't accept it. They found that his words were simply too hard, too harsh, too difficult, too severe. One of the things that I have to uh, uh, admit to you today is, I feel like that one of the great dangers of the American church is we have made Jesus too safe, too benign. We have turned him into this creator of institutional religious culture club where we come and we're the people who have morally arrived rather than the people who have simply surrendered our life to him completely. The one who offers us a complete alternative way to look at everything in our life. Our life, our money, our time, our creativity, our family, everything. And instead, we've made him into just like a plus one for our life. A nice little addition. Rather than the one who is our complete and total existence. Does this offend you? I wonder if those same words might resonate with us when we think about Jesus calling our life. 
which is the same call that he had in the life of his first followers. He goes on to say something that's a little bit difficult to understand, especially in the original language. Verse 62, after saying this, he says, Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Uh, literally, uh, the, 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 in, in the grammatical formation of the sentence, is simply, it simply says, if then you see. So it's kind of hard for us to make sense of that <clears throat> in English. And so translators try to help make sense of it. And so in the, in the translation I've used, the Christian Standard Bible, they add the words, what if. In some, you might uh, see the, fr- something, some phrase that goes something like, suppose then you see. But literally, it simply says, if then you see the Son of Man, a man ascending to where he was before. And that's it. And it's like, uh, and, 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 and then what? And so that causes the scholars to kind of under, what does Jesus mean by this? And most of them believe that he is at some level referring to his return to heaven, but maybe not his actual ascension. And I found it helpful that as I was reading one, one scholar, he said, perhaps we should understand the phrase that Jesus is using here, ascending to where he was before, as, a, as kind of a shorthand summary of the climax of his work, his way of saving us. Taken all together, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension that finished that work, he was going to the place that he was before. It's kind of a, a reference to that. And some people have, have, have thought that Jesus is asking them, uh, will, will, will this not even trouble you further if you see this? And other, others have suggested that maybe Jesus means, will that not uh, you know, uh, cause you to see me differently when you see this? We're not sure which it is. It's kind, of a, it's kind of a difficult thing. This one is a phrase that's very difficult to understand, but I think that, that, understand, that maybe that perspective of it's a bit of a shorthand way of Jesus kind of referring to the entirety of his salvi- uh, salvific work is exactly maybe where Jesus is taking us in this. He goes on to say then in verse 63, the spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Clearly, Jesus is is showing that life is a gift of the Holy Spirit. That was in contrast to the common belief that that the law would give life. By the the average ordinary Jew who was in Jesus' day, they would speak of the law giving life. And Jesus talks about not just the wooden words of the law as the life-giving mechanism of God, but instead the Spirit himself. And he's referred to that in uh, previous times, even in John as well. He's saying his words rightly received bring about a transformation, that his words that he has spoken to them, they are spirit and are life. Now, we would kind of expect the writer to say his words are spirit and life, kind of calling them both things, but, but, the, but the use of the, the repetition of the verb there in are seems to really emphasize that his words are both spirit and they are life as well. And so they're, they, he, Jesus is, is driving the, them then to this understanding of the spiritual dynamic by which their transformation takes place. But at that, this, and again, in this reaction, these varied reactions that we find from the people in chapter 6, we see that it just was met with a cold-hearted unbelief. Jesus says in verse 64, but there are some among you who don't believe. Pistueo, faith, you don't have faith. 
For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe. And by the way, some manuscripts have the word not omitted. So what your, your translation might say, he knew those who, would, who did not believe. Some might say the, the, he knew those who did believe. But I think the point is the same, right? He knows who's going to believe. He knows who's not going to believe. He said, that is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. In other words, Jesus is talking here as he's experiencing the unbelief of some of these people. He's helping them to understand that salvation coming to him, it is not a human achievement. It is not something they work their way into. But again, just like he had said in verse 44, they can't come to him unless the Father draws them to himself, draws them to him. And so the work of the Father, it's, it's, and, and, and the problem is, is, is that they and all of us, without the work of God in our lives, without the drawing of the Father, without the work of the Holy Spirit, we are blind, we are hard-hearted, we need revelation. And so God must open our eyes to this truth that he is the bread of life. Again, if, if, if our eyes aren't opened, then we're going to react just like the people did in Jesus' day. This is too hard can't accept it. This is, I meet it with, uh, with unbelief. I can't get my life to that because it just doesn't jive with what I think life is all about. So because of that, because of that, because of that disdain for this claim that Jesus was the bread of life, where their unbelief ultimately led them to desert him. From that moment, or in some translations, because of this. Some people, for some, in some translations, it's kind of a time reference. For some, it's kind of a reason reference. From that moment or because of this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him, no longer walked with him. We oftentimes refer to our spiritual journey as our walk with Christ, right? And that's literally what the, walk, what the word is here. They no longer walked with Jesus. From that point forward, this idea that, that Jesus, again, was this new, fresh rabbi. He had some fascinating things to say. He challenged authority. He did these amazing miracles. He brought with him this new kind of teaching. And he was worth following. He was worth following. And that's why he had these large crowds, because it was a show. And there were things to see. And it was like a wow moment nearly every time you were with Jesus. And by the way, sometimes your grandma got healed. Sometimes you got a free meal. It's worth going there. But now if you're going to talk about this thing of me eating your flesh and drinking your blood, that you are the bread of life, that you are the one way to the Father, well, that for many that were in the crowd who were not believers then, it just led them to say, you know what? (laughs) Like I said, I, I can't really listen to this. I can't accept this. And I'm done with this. Their unbelief simply led to them leaving him. It became just too much, too hard, too harsh, too severe. Kind of like us for sometimes, you know? Oh, come to church for an hour or two on Sunday? Maybe give a little money, pray a little prayer. But if you're talking about my entire life being given to Jesus, and sometimes I think we underrepresent the call of Jesus in our teaching. And so Jesus said to the 12, after they had seen all of this going on, this unbelief, this disdain, this desertion, 
He looks at them and he asks them a question. And in Greek, it, you can ask a question that, where you expect a yes answer. You can ask a question in the form of where you expect a no answer. And that's what Jesus does. He does the latter in this. He says to the 12, you, and the you is in, emphatic. He's like, okay, all those guys are leaving. What about you? You don't want to go to way too, do you? It's like Jesus is saying, whatever be the case with all these other people, you don't want to go, do you? And we have the positive response. We have the response, I would suggest to you, that is there for all of us to consider. It's devotion. That's ultimately what God's call in our life is. So Simon Peter, one of those 12, oftentimes the spokesperson, many times getting it wrong, this time getting it absolutely right, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? To leave would be unthinkable. (laughs) You have the words of eternal life. Remember when Jesus asked him the question, I said the, the you, what about you? It's emphatic. In, in the same way, the we here is emphatic. We, whatever everyone else has done, we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Those words, believe and know, are both in the perfect tense. And you don't have to know so much about what that means except to say that the thrust of that, them being in the perfect tense, means that they have come to a place of faith and knowledge and they remain in it. They are there. There's nowhere else to go. There's nothing else to do. You and only you have the words of eternal life. So why can we, how can we go anywhere else? How many of you at times, if we're just like, come on, let's just get a little bit honest with each other. How many times do you think, I don't know if this following Jesus thing is really what, uh, I don't know, I don't think I really signed up for the right thing here. I mean, can't I just go back into that kind of like, oh, culture club, kind of like, you know, country club, kind of like just, you know, yeah, a little bit of Christian affinity, and I like this kind of stuff, and it fits well with some of my stuff, but then this other part. But for those of us who have come by the power of God to see the truth about the person of Jesus, we have nowhere else to go. Exactly like Peter said, we have come to know and believe. It's, it emphasizes here a certainty. There is trust. There, there, there's a not that we could never abandon him. There is loyalty because we know it. We don't just know it by intuition. But the word there is gnosko. It means to know something experientially. They have experienced the person of Jesus And we have too. That word gnosko is actually a a Jewish idiom for the relationship that a husband and wife have with each other physically. That's how much, that's the manner in which we know Jesus. And Jesus says, of course, again, pointing back to that, that it's not, it wasn't their human achievement. They didn't come to that on their own, right? But he says, didn't I choose you, the twelve? So they're responding in faith to him. And and so, again, we're always dependent upon the work of the Father, upon the work of the Holy Spirit to bringing us to that place of revelation that we can believe, that we can know without him. We would never do it on our own. 
And he finishes up with the last reaction to him, and he gives kind of a foreshadowing. I don't know that the person knew that, this, that he was going to do this yet, but Jesus knew, and he spoke of treachery. So in addition to disdain and desertion and unbelief, we even have treachery in the ministry of Jesus because Jesus was referring to this when he mentioned one being a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the 12, because he was going to betray him. I don't know that Judas knew that yet, but Jesus was aware that this one from Kerioth, by the way, the only one who wasn't a Galilean, not that that makes him the, the reason that he was the betrayer. Only one who wasn't from Galilee. Judas becomes the one who would betray him. And Jesus identifies that. It's interesting to note that of all of the things that could have been said about Judas in all four of the Gospels, this is actually probably the most negative light that is shown on him. There's really not a lot of other negative words spoken by the writers of the Gospels. Other than this, they simply kind of state the facts about what he did, who he was, and then kind of let you draw your conclusions from there. But clearly, Jesus understands that he is working as one of Satan's emissaries in trying to accomplish something that is adverse to the plan of God. In all of that, as we think about, and that's why I took the time to start at the beginning of chapter 6 and bring it all the way through. As we think about how Jesus is running with this metaphor all the way through, He ultimately is trying to bring us to the same place where he looks at each one of us and says, what about you? In relationship to my claim that I am the bread of life, I am the new manna, that you're called to consume me. What about you? Has God made clear to you, have you come to know and believe with assurance that he truly is the Holy One of God? A phrase that's not used very often in the New Testament, used only really one other time uh, by actually uh, the demon-possessed man in Capernaum who refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God. It's used oftentimes in the, in the, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. But I think what what John has pictured here when Peter makes this confession and what Peter has in mind is the phrase that we see so often in the Old Testament, the Holy One of Israel, which referred to God. That's exactly, I would suggest to you, the confession that that Peter is making. Lord, may we all say today, to whom shall we go other than you? We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. You alone have the words of eternal life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, these dramatic encounters that Jesus has with all of these people, with, with Jewish leaders, with, with uh, adversaries and opponents, with uh, seeming disciples that weren't really disciples, and with the ones who had genuinely had faith in him, that, Lord God, I, I pray that 
you would take these encounters and this entirety of the, of the thrust of the agenda that, that you have for why you inspired John to write John 6, write this chapter 6 as he did. And I pray that you would burn it into our hearts, Lord. I pray that we would come to that same place of complete and total surrender, that simple trust, that absolute loyalty, that complete devotion. God, that's not our orientation. We will not do that in the flesh. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, and enable our wills to follow you. Not just to have a casual interest, but to have a complete surrender to the Holy One of God. It's in his name we pray. Amen.